It's the last day of March, and what kind of person would I be if I didn't take an episode to talk about women in bourbon? I thought about asking my wife to record this episode in an attempt to defer to an actual bona fide female for this particular topic, but I came up with two legitimate questions. Why would I do that? And why wouldn't I do that? So why would I do that? Well, there's a ton of machismo and chauvinistic trash that exists in this particular market space. Trying to co-opt a female voice really feels like appropriation. You don't have to ask around very much to find stacks on stacks of stories about women being ignored in a bar or condescended to when ordering or asking questions about whiskey. So I'll do my damnedest to keep from mansplaining any of this subject. And secondly, why wouldn't I do that? Well, my wife doesn't really care about whiskey or bourbon. It would be virtue signaling for me to have her come on here and record the episode just to prove that I'm aware enough or woke enough to defer to her. It feels a bit disingenuous to even try to speak with any degree of authority about women and whiskey from a male perspective. The need for groups like Female Whiskey Society and Women Bourbon Society to even exist speaks to the fact that men have largely owned the marketing and educational spaces of whiskey for eons. What has traditionally been your father's beverage of choice has virtually built in a masculine language. I've already talked to some degree about Marion Eves and her innovation in the whiskey marketplace, and I've mentioned Fawn Weaver and her instrumental work in telling the story of Nearest Green. Anyone would be hard-pressed to find any better ambassador to this spirit, but they aren't alone. Today's episode is going to be about several others in this space. I'll talk about some historical figures, some ladies that are trying to create communities for women to gather and further their understanding of whiskey, and finally, some women who are actively participating in the production of the spirit. We are celebrating their achievements in a hyper-masculine marketplace, and why shouldn't we? Women, scientifically, are far better suited to lead this industry. They have better palates, better organizational skills, and a stronger fortitude when it comes to adversity. So today's episode is the Queens of Bourbon, or maybe Distill Her. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truth, half-truths, and outright lies, and decide if truthiness even matters. Historically, women have been a subjugated portion of the culture of the world. Relegated to rearing children and keeping a house, the idea of women participating in the history of whiskey seems counterculture. But women have a way of doing what they want once they put their mind to it, going so far as to utilize initials to protect their identity in contracts before they were legally allowed to even participate in contracts. Ellen Jane Corgan, widow of Patrick Corgan, the owner of Old Bushmill Distillery, did just that. After her husband died, she continued to participate in the day-to-day operation of the Bushmill's business arm of distilling. She made a great deal of success, increasing the production and value of the distillery. She introduced modernization efforts like the idea of utilizing electricity and improved their historical business procedure. The respect for her amongst peers was great enough that when she sold the distillery, she negotiated for a voting spot on the board of the new company. This is completely unheard of during that period in history. In the early 1800s, Millie Stone obtained a distiller's license in the state of Kentucky to distill her own liquor here in this state. While her 
role was one of a legal venture, the participation of women in illegal liquor trade was huge as well. I guess it was easier for them to participate in an illegal trade considering that their participation would have deemed it illegal to begin with. While some didn't mind participating in the illegal side of the trade, others found a way to outwit the system. Such is the story of Mary Dowling from DW Distillery. While Mary was wildly successful in managing the distillery left to her after her husband's death, her story gets more interesting as we run up to a time of national prohibition. After being caught selling whiskey to a couple of IRS agents, the Dowlings were eventually convicted for the sale of alcohol. Through the due diligence of a lawyer upon reviewing the case, it was thrown out on what some might deem as a technicality. Mary developed a new business plan. She arranged for her distillery in Kentucky to be dismantled and transported to Juarez, Mexico by none other than Joseph Bean. Mary created her own market for American-style whiskey in Mexico. Compared to the offerings that were already present, it's wildly apparent that her distillate was preferred. Logistically, the proximity to the southwest portion of the United States allowed for American tourists to cross the border and enjoy her beverage. If one so chose, they could even transport it back illegally. It's been long rumored that her whiskey was still somehow making it into the United States for distribution. Mary outlived her husband by quite a bit and expanded the brand and notoriety of it immensely. This idea of coloring outside the lines is something that historical women of whiskey had to participate in daily. When George Dickel passed away, he left instructions for his wife to get rid of the distillery as soon as she could. While Augusta did not get rid of it immediately, she may not have played a role in the day-to-day -day operation, which seems to be a pretty common thread that it takes the death of a husband for a woman to get a seat at the management table. Similarly, upon the death of Charles Nelson, his wife Louisa took over the role of president of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. For 18 years, she shepherded the brand to whiskey greatness. And I'd be incredibly remiss if I talked about the historical role women have had in whiskey and I didn't mention Margie Samuel. If you've been around bourbon for more than 10 minutes, the Samuel's name will ring a bell you most likely cut your teeth in a bar on the Samuels family brand. Margie's history with Kentucky whiskey doesn't start with Maker's Brand, though. She was born in distilling, and she had ties to the Mattingly and Moore bourbon line. Margie went to college in the 1930s, obtaining a degree in chemistry, which in and of itself is unheard of, and then met her future husband, Bill Samuels Sr. The story of the creation of the Maker's Mark brand is one of a marriage of quality product and fantastic branding, and that's the role Margie plays in this particular story. The red wax, the maker's stamp, the bottle and the label design, all crafted with intent and under the watchful gaze of Margie Samuel. In preparation for this episode, I put a feeler out on social media asking for a list of women that I should highlight in this particular episode. Within minutes of posting, I had a series of messages and interactions with Morgan from Female Whiskey Society, making sure that I had a solid list of women to discuss. But the list felt like it was missing something. And it was missing something. It was missing Morgan. The fact that she could recall within minutes a long list of influential women in whiskey and bourbon is indicative of her passion and connection to the market. Morgan has been building a voice for women in the whiskey world for a few months. She's identified that lack of space for women to feel comfortable expanding their palates and horizons. Increasing education, something that has been historically reserved for men. Female Whiskey Society is creating content that isn't altogether different than other whiskey digital spaces, but the intention is what's different. Morgan has avoided pinkifying her offerings. If you aren't familiar with pinkifying, here's the long and short of it. Inevitably, when a company decides that they need to reach women as a market segment, they have a few methods they'll implement in their attempts. They'll make a product pink and use flowery fonts and language because, you know, that's exactly what women want. 
or they can hire a token female spokesperson, someone to champion their brand and tell other women, I'm just like you and you should agree with whatever it is that I'm trying to sell. As a father of daughters, I can only hope that spaces like this continue to be made available to them. Places where they can feel comfortable communicating about something that they like without having to worry about the traditional behaviors of folks in a hyper-masculine marketplace. Furthermore, if they don't see a space, much like Morgan, I'll hope that they'll create it. Where Morgan identified a void in the virtual whiskey space, Peggy No Stevens identified one in the physical spaces, those of bourbon event execution. Peggy may be one of the best-known women in the modern history of bourbon. Her experience in the industry spans 20-some-odd years. She worked a large portion of her bourbon career with Brown Foreman, partnering with Lincoln Henderson to help develop her own ability to taste and understand whiskey. This education culminated in her gaining the title of Master Bourbon Taster. The central focus of her impact in bourbon branding was one of hospitality. She's created, managed, overseen, and executed bourbon visitor experiences, international tastings, and large-scale events. Through all of these types of interactions, she noticed the same behavior everywhere. Women were relegated to the back of the crowd, and they would largely only ask questions after the event was over. Identifying a lack of interaction is one thing, but taking action is yet another. Peggy set out to launch the Bourbon Women Association. Their goal is to gain recognition as legitimate consumer segment of bourbon, network with women who share an affinity for the spirit, and invalidate some preconceived notions about how a whiskey company should go about marketing to women. She uses the term depinkify, and I don't think there's a more accurate assessment or an indictment of product marketing in traditionally male-dominated products. For Peggy, it's not about being a social club. It's about creating a movement for sustainable change to recognize the impact women have had, are having, and will have on whiskey in the future. Last, but certainly not least, are the women who are actively involved in the distillation, blending, bottling, and sale of spirits. Women who are involved in creating stories and products to enhance the bourbon marketplace. It only makes sense that women should be leading the effort to create and blend spirits. There's an abundance of science that tells us that women truly are better tasters and smellers than men. The evolutionary question of why is often posited that it developed out of a need to be able to detect inedible food or recognize babies by scent, but we'll never truly know. Other studies have shown that men are more susceptible to the emotional response of a taste, more so than that of women at least. They're more likely to say that's good whether their brain tells them that it is or not, and it shouldn't be surprising to find women crafting offerings for us to enjoy. But it is. Nancy Fraley is one of those women. Nancy was not steeped in the whiskey tradition from inception. She didn't grow up with a bottle of Kentucky's Finest in her hand. She came to whiskey, and more specifically bourbon, by a more indirect route. Professionally, Nancy came to whiskey through the world of high-end, low-yield cognac, exploring an old-world distillation techniques, blending, and aging to create more premier spirits. After years of mentorship, Nancy forged out on her own. She began her own consulting business and quickly got brought into the world of bourbon, rye, and single malt American whiskey. Nancy is recognized as the nose and taste behind Joseph Magnus bourbons. She uses her superior nose and palate to help recreate a 122-year-old bottle of whiskey into a new offering. She was able to tap into her blending and maturation experience in the cognac industry to help recreate the recipe of the bourbon. The resulting product that sits on the shelf is Joseph Magnus Triple Cast Finished Straight Bourbon Whiskey. About a year ago, I found myself in Sacramento, California, in the waning days before a nationwide quarantine. When I travel for work, I use it as an opportunity to try whiskeys in a bar that otherwise I would have to purchase an entire bottle of to get a taste. Sitting on the edge of a worldwide pandemic, I had the opportunity to try Joseph Magnus. My initial thoughts were entirely underwhelming. 
Could it have been my palate was off or the stress of the situation? I don't really know, but I tried to observe the rule of three. Three separate tastings before I write off a bottle entirely. When I began preparing for this particular episode, I decided it was time to give it its second run. I'm certainly glad that I did. I've heard the term caramel bomb used in describing bourbons before and never quite understood exactly what that meant. I can get a scent and taste of caramel, but I've never experienced a a bomb, so to speak. But on second glance, this is exactly what a caramel bomb should be. The richness of this particular whiskey to me is indicative of old world techniques and a blending style used to create a very complex flavor profile. Nancy continues to run her nosing services, judge whiskey competitions, and create tools for distilleries and whiskey aficionados to further educate their nosing and tasting skills. There's nothing quite like a family story in whiskey. Familial traditions are the bedrock of the Kentucky bourbon ethos, second only to that of a spirit born out of an agrarian society. The idea of farm-to-table was a foreign concept in the restaurant industry 15 years ago, but today it's a vital marketplace. The idea of grained glass is on a similar trajectory within the whiskey marketplace. And that's exactly what the offerings from Jephtha Creed are, a grain-to-glass family affair. Jephtha Creed is the brainchild of the Nethery family. Joyce is the co-owner and the master distiller of Jephtha Creed. She was formally educated in industrial chemistry and more specifically distilling. Joyce had a successful career in industrial distillation, followed with an opportunity to teach chemistry in an educational setting. As parents often do, Joyce began to think about what the future would hold for her children. A combination of her husband's knowledge in farming, Joyce's experience in distillation, and a residence in the state of Kentucky, it should surprise no one that the solution was to start a distillery. The only catch was that neither of the two had any experience in the whiskey industry. There's no better way to get it than just to start. Joyce, in concert with her daughter Autumn, opened the distillery in 2016, and it's been off to the races since then. As success increased, so did the need for help with the operation. The triple threat of Joyce, Autumn, and now Stephanie Preston has led to an incredible increase in the demand for products that they make. Much like the Nethery family, a brand was born out of a family with Catoctin Creek. Tangential to the grain-to-glass concept, the story of Catoctin Creek comes from Becky Harris, the chief distiller and co-owner, and her husband seeking out a new career. Becky's strong background in chemistry and her husband's business acumen melded together at just the right time for them to identify the potential within the whiskey marketplace. And not just any whiskey marketplace, but the budding marketplace in Virginia. Once a historical powerhouse in the whiskey distilling practice, at the time of Catoctin's inception, there were only six distilleries that were still active in Virginia. The Harrises launched the distillery almost as an experiment, an opportunity to begin creating something from nothing. They were looking for new careers, and instead of sending out resumes and attending interviews, they got to the business of distilling spirit. Both with pretty strict backgrounds and process, it enabled them to produce a top-shelf bottle of rye with very little historical attachment to the industry. Such was Becky's success that she ultimately became the president of the American Crafts Spirits Association. Over the course of the last few months, I've hosted a dozen or so virtual tasting events. It's been largely a male audience, but I've found that the women who do attend often pull out far more detailed tasting notes, regardless of their particular level of comfort with bourbon or whiskey. They've been able to identify specific brands and describe obscure tasting notes and ask legitimately good questions. I found that given a comfortable space to explore, their growth is incredible. There's an incredibly rich history of women within the whiskey story of the United States. They've played foundational roles, become innovators, exhibited shrewd business acumen, and displayed superior 
superior tasting abilities. It's only right that we take a few weeks out of every year to celebrate the role that women have played, are playing, and will play within the industry. It's blatantly apparent that much of the future of the industry will lie in their capable hands. The only issue I might have with the idea of a Women's Appreciation Month in the industry is that it's relegated to a single month, or maybe the fact that we've created spaces that are exclusionary within bourbon. That leaves me with the question, how can we as men help? We can support the names and brands that are being championed by women. We can help those who are creating spaces for women to explore the spirit. We can make sure that there's a seat at the table for the voice of the opposite sex. We can get the hell out of their way and let them innovate and create. When we do those things, we will all benefit because the things that they are about to do, they far exceed traditional understandings of what could be done. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.